Hey, thank you all for joining us. <clears throat> so just a reminder, these are Friday Gallery Talks. We meet regularly every week at 12.30 on Friday. And today's guest is we're very happy to have is Gerald Levinson. He's a distinguished professor of philosophy at the University of Maryland College Park, where he's taught since 1976. He's the author of Music, Art, and Metaphysics, um, Cornell, publishing 1990, The Pleasures of Aesthetics, Cornell, 1996. Now I'm going to be hearing these beeps, just to let you know those are uh, alarms, so step away from here. He's also um, done uh, La Musique de Film, um, and it's uh, Preston's University in 2000, Contemplating Art from Oxford, Aesthetics and Ethics, and the Oxford Handbook of Aesthetics in 2003. Um, he is the past president of the American Society for Aesthetics in 2001 to 2003, and a member of the editorial board of the Journal of Aesthetics and Art Criticism. Uh, there's an interview with him on a podcast if you'd like to hear him, although you can hear him now, right? And this will be a podcast as well, but if you want to hear more podcasts with him, he spoke on the subject of improvisation um, in a French social science journal called um, Tracé, and um, on the subject of music and eros. Um, it can also be found at www.philosophybytes.com. There's also a volume of essays that he's going to be trans that, that you're translating. Well, I'm not translating. Oh, it's translated from Italian. No, no, for English to Italian. From English to Italian. See, he's helping me out here. And um, he's been awarded a prize from the Societa, Societa Italiana de um, Estetica, which is forthcoming. So, I didn't mangle that too much. Anyway, <laughs> thank fun. you very much for being here. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I, the format of these talks, I think, is to focus on one work. Uh, and I guess if you're like an art historian, art critic, you'd probably do an in-depth, formal uh, sort of analysis of the work. But I'm not that. I'm a philosopher and I'm a professor, so I'm going to sort of lecture a bit, make a few points. But I'm not going to talk about one work. I'm going to talk about two works because I find um, most of what uh, art has to uh, offer and to convey to us is, is only clear when you put things sort of in context, especially in comparative context. In any case, I want you to look at these two paintings for a bit, and then, then I'll say something about them. They're obviously uh, examples of what are called monochromes, paintings that just use one color. And um, you know, superficially, they're fairly similar. They're both rectangles. They're both blue. And they're both kind of big. Um, but um, how different are they? That's the question uh, that I want you to think about and I will talk about for a few minutes. And um, also, how different are they not in ways that are purely visual? Let's say they're visually a bit different, but maybe they're different in other ways that are actually more important in terms of the meaning or content or expression of, of these paintings. Uh, obviously, we could, we, could spend, uh, we could spend a long time looking at these paintings for the differences, but I think you can see pretty clearly there are some differences. The blues are slightly different. Uh, the size is different. Uh, the texture is different. But um, these paintings are really very different when you know about them, in particular when you know about the process that goes into creating them, which is very different in the two cases. Before, before I, I talk about these differences, let me back up a bit and, and say a few more general things about, uh, about monochromes, paintings of one color. If you came up in the way I think you did, you walked through the first room, which had a lot of monochromes of different colors. 
So one question is, why did uh, this artist, Yves Klein, uh, um, whose main work is in the 50s in, in France, why did he decide uh, to focus on, uh, on um, monochromes? In particular, why did, he, why did he end up deciding to focus on one color? Well, in that show that you saw at the beginning, there were lots of different colors. And apparently, he didn't like the reaction of the public to that, to that show because they thought the idea was to show all the different colors, to sort of be decorative or pretty. And apparently, that wasn't his idea at all. So he thought that he could at least eliminate that reading of his work by focusing on one color. So the next question is, why did he focus on blue as opposed, for example, to beet red that we were talking about before, uh, informally before this uh, event started? Uh, why did he focus on blue and the, particularly this sort of very deep ultramarine blue, it's called, which is ultramarine, is basically super sea blue. Why did he focus on that? And there he, he made statements that, that give a pretty clear answer to that. The reason he focused on blue is that it's the color that he thought of as the most abstract of all the colors. The color that isn't connected to objects or recognizable things as clearly as most other colors. And it's also the color that we connect most strongly to those sort of quasi-objects, the sea and the sky. And what is the distinguishing thing about the sea and the sky? It's that, you know, unlike uh, you know, an orange or a tree or a person or a chair, it's sort of unlimited, it's unbounded. It doesn't have clear edges or, or limits. And this was an aspect that, of blue that uh, obviously appealed to Klein. In terms of what he was trying to do with his monochromes, which we'll get back to uh, shortly, which isn't simply to sort of pr provide a pretty color for you to look at. Although, of course, it is a pretty color. But it's a color that, for him, was something like a window or a door to something further, a kind of meaning or, uh, uh, or significance beyond the visual. And in fact, uh, Klein himself, and then a sort of later critic uh, defender of his called Pierre Restani, uh, was very fond of saying that Klein didn't make paintings in the ordinary sense, that his paintings are not traditional paintings. So that's something you can think about, and maybe I'll, I'll ask you why you think that might be true uh, after I stopped uh, talking for a bit. Um, that they're not traditional paintings. Well, you know, one obvious thing is that maybe they're not there to be contemplated in terms of the manipulation of form and color or the depiction of objects or, or you know, a realistic representation of the world the way many other paintings are intended. So they're not really, they're not really images of anything. They're not experiments in the manipulation of form and color the way other sorts of abstract paintings are. Um, they're not really windows you know, into a scene or a landscape the way, say, some other painters you might be familiar with who make almost monochromes, for example, Rothko. Rothko, these big um, uh, paintings with uh, floating kind of rectangles of color, sometimes it's almost only just one color. But um, those paintings are, 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 are very different than, from, than Klein's. Klein's are, are about something else. They're not about the manipulation of form or the depiction of the, a world or the presentation of an image. So for example, it, that differentiates them from the most important precursor, in a sense, of Klein's monochromes, the, uh, the monochromes of uh, uh, this um, uh, uh, Russian-Ukrainian painter named Malevich, uh, who, was, uh, who, who, who created a movement of his own called suprematism. Well, we don't work. OK, 
care, worry about what that exactly means. But in any case, uh, Malevich was one of the first to make something like monochromes. He made uh, two, two most iconic or famous paintings. One is a sort of painting of a black square, and another is called uh, white on white. So it's a white square on a white background, and the, the main square is sort of tilted diagonally in relation to the background. But both of those paintings are still really conventional paintings, even though they're sort of monochromes, because there is a, a foreground and a background. There is an image and a, you know, a kind of a setting to that image. But these paintings, both of them in fact, are not that. There's no foreground-background distinction. Um, uh, there's no um, you know, subject and kind of setting. There's just this sort of object, this expanse of blue. So um, Malevich's paintings were in some sense a, a background to, uh, to Klein's, but they're still, they're, they're very different in what, in what they are aiming at and what they achieve. Um, also, they're, they're obviously less, the Malevich's are less pure. They're monochromes only in an extended sense, because if you have the black square and the white background, well, and that's part of the painting, there's two colors, and even in the white on white, well, you couldn't even see the first white unless it was a different color from the other white. And this is also true of many of the later painters who explored the field of monochromes. Um, painters like Ad Reinhardt or Robert Ryman uh, or Rauschenberg early in his career who did variants of black paintings or white paintings. But if you look at those paintings carefully, you see that uh, even compared to these, which have a bit of you know, differentiation, those have a lot of differentiation. They're exploring different shades of black and different kind of modulations of white and different textures. These are much more purely, as it were, some kind of a, well, it's hard to know, apotheosis of blue is maybe the right way to put it. Okay, now let me say something uh, um, uh, about the difference between these two paintings. The difference that's most salient when you know how they were created. Well, this painting was created with, uh, with rollers and has a sort of very, fairly flat texture uh, and a, a sort of you know, a, impersonal um, effect as a result. But this painting, which might have been created with rollers and is also fairly, I guess, impersonal in a way and doesn't obviously depict anything, was created by using the living brushes that Klein is uh, famous for. This was the first painting, I think, created using living brushes. What are living brushes? And do you have them in your home? And should you look under the sink? No, living brushes are, are human beings used to apply paint to canvases. And in Klein's case, uh, he used uh, nude, uh, nubile women's bodies to apply the paint to canvases. Um, I might get back to that later. He didn't want to get his hands dirty, in a sense. Uh, so he was, he's, he's a proponent of body art, but not his own body. In any case, this painting is produced by having uh, women uh, apply the ultramarine paint to their bodies, this, uh, this, this color which he was so obsessed with that he, he patented it eventually. It's called International Klein Blue. Obviously, it has a range of cues, use possible since they're not exactly the same color. But um, um, in any case, so the women applied the paint to, the, to this canvas with their bodies in such a way that in contrast to a later series of, uh, of clients called the Anthropometry, how many of you have sort of looked into that or seen them? That those paintings, the imprint of the body is, is manifest, is really salient, and is, 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 is obviously a subject of the, the painting produced. Here, the imprint of the body is really lost. Um, 
the imprints that you see, if you want to get close to you, there is a certain texture to it, are not the imprints of bodies. They're just the, just the kind of uh, normal sorts of, uh, you know, dripping and spreading that paint uh, undergoes um, if it's put on, you know, by anything, I guess, but a, uh, a roller or, a, um, or a, spray, a spray device. So when you look at these two, two, two paintings, they end up seeming very different once you think about how they're made. Once you think of how they're made, once you think of them in terms of what they are a kind of imprint of, what they are a kind of trace of, or uh, a trace, as the, the French say. Because the theme of trace, the trace, is very important in Klein's work. If you go through all the uh, different um, examples of his work in this show, almost all of them are examples of trace, that is to say, of imprints or, or uh, um, effects left on canvas or on canvas-like material by something, by some phenomenon. And in particular, by not, not personal phenomena or, or you know, natural phenomena in the broad sense. Klein wasn't interested in having his, wasn't interested in, in leaving the imprint on canvas of the standard individualistic, subjectivist, ego, you know, pronouncing or proclaiming artist, namely the artist's line, the artist's hand, the artist's gesture. That was the only imprint he wasn't interested in. All of his, all of his works uh, involved the imprints left by things other than his own kind of individuality or his own, you know, individual gesture of a manual sort. So either by rollers or by other people's bodies, sometimes manifest in the result, as in the anthropometry, but sometimes, you know, not manifest, something you have to know about in terms of the background, uh, as in this uh, painting, or in the sponge paintings, um, which sponges are kind of natural object, uh, or in, uh, I think, most clearly in the, uh, well, in the fire paintings as well. He, he created paintings by sort of uh, uh, holding, uh, you know, a tube of, of, of uh, in of gas on fire against canvases and creating kind of charred, charred sort of images. But most clearly in the, in the case of the, uh, the last series, I think he was, or one of the last he was involved in called the Cosmo, Cos I don't even know how to pronounce this one, Cosmogonie, probably, uh, which were uh, paintings that were produced by exposing canvas to the elements, to the wind, to the rain, to the, uh, to snow. Um, for example, one of them he made of this sort, he, he attached the, the freshly, treated canvas, maybe painted with something or other on top of his car and just drove from one place in France to another few hours. And then the result was this sort of um, maybe predecessor of what you know, people do in these uh, uh, town uh, art fairs now, these kind of uh, you know, spinning, uh, spinning art, uh, spin art type uh, paintings. In any case, so all of these things, uh, just about all of his production can be seen as examples of impersonal traces, impersonal imprints in which the personality of the artist has been uh, extracted or eliminated. Actually, I think there's a sort of fallacy in thinking that you can make art that way. It's the same fallacy that uh, uh, a, a, a composer who's, whose work is in a way has a certain resonance with, uh, with, uh, with Klein's, namely uh, John Cage. That is say by by choosing impersonal, random, and kind of hands-off sort of methods that you achieve a kind of no personality, a kind of Zen purity and, and total absence of subjectivity. That's not actually true if you think about it. But I'll let you I'll let you think about it a bit more um, yourself. <clears throat> so um, these paintings are are very different. 
So what they, they are doing, what they're expressing, and, and the way they affect us are, is different, not only because of the things that are visually different about them, but because of the things about, that are different about them in terms of how they were made. Uh, and they're different from other sorts of monochromes by other artists because of the different uh, objectives that Klein had and because of the, the way they block certain ways of taking them that are still applicable to some of those other monochromes, the ones I mentioned by Reinhardt or Ryman or, or, uh, or Malevich or, or Albers, American art, German-American artists who also sort of did monochromes. Um, one, one more word about Malevich and, and Albers. They both did square paintings, and those paintings are as much about square as they are about the particular colors that they're exploring. Klein's paintings are not about form. They're not about the rectangle. They're, they're all sort of rectangle. The, re, the, 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 the shape doesn't matter. Does the color matter? Well, I talked about the sense in which the color matters because the, the particular color chosen is one that he thinks can take you beyond the visual and to sort of into a kind of an experience of uh, you know, limitlessness or boundlessness or infinity. And that maybe will get, give the paintings a kind of spiritual dimension. And that's really what he was after, whether, whether he succeeded by making the way he did without a figure ground contrast, without frames. Notice they're very, very pointedly without frames. They're not about the forms. They're about the color per se. They're about the color as idea. And since I think I've been talking long enough, let me stop now and end with a question. If it's really about the color as idea, if Klein is in this respect, and he really was the predecessor of lots and lots of, or one of the forerunners of lots and lots of important movements in 20th century art in the second part of the 20th century, including, but maybe not restricted to, performance art, body art, conceptual art, minimal art, uh, installation art. So he is, he's a predecessor of lots of these things, but in, in, um, uh, in particular, he's sort of a predecessor of conceptual and minimal art. So if that's the case, and if, if, if part of what I'm saying is correct, particularly like this painting, is about the idea of color per se, or color as an idea, why does he actually need the color at all? If he wants to take you beyond the visual, if he's not interested in exploring form in the visual sense, why does he actually need the color? Why didn't he go to the, the, the take the further step of some later artists like um, On Kanao, I think his name is, or Jenny Holzer? Why didn't he just have paintings in which you have the, the word blue in bold capital letters? Why wouldn't that have done as well? So I'll stop there and maybe you'll have an answer to that. I, I, think, I, don't, I think that's ironic because that's a really sensual painting. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, conceptual and you put it on with a roller and it gives it this very soft velvety effect. I mean you just want to put it on the floor and roll on it. I mean it's just very sensual. So it's not not about the object. He is making objects. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really interesting that you said that because he did end up making some pieces of work that had to deal with light. Like you know sense I guess sometimes I'm just worried that if someone makes a blue word, the word blue ends up being a little more redundant and a little less mysterious as opposed to these blue objects. And if you look that mystery in terms of his personality. Wait, I'm not sure I follow that. Is it the mystery that he's trying to get across couldn't be achieved by using the mere idea of the word blue? It required the Required the visual experience of the blue, or maybe the sensuality of the blue, in, in the way that 
this person mentioned? starts dealing with words that isn't the same as the, the visual play mm -hmm. um, that you get with the objects. Mm -hmm. um, also, I think that Klein was a very spiritual person and um, a lot of later language art puts an emphasis more on intellectualism and even though there's a lot of text in this show, I don't really think No, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think you know, even if we see Klein as a as a precursor, a precursor of conceptual art or purist or minimalist art, these paintings are not that. These paintings are maybe a way station towards that, but they're clearly not that. And then taking up on uh, what was your name? Andrea. Andrea's comment. There is always a two-sidedness, or there's a two-side to a lot of what Klein does. So in one sense, he's talking about being non-individual, non-subjective, erasing his ego. But obviously, so many of these things are pure showmanship, pure, uh, you know, uh, Andy Warhol sorts of uh, um, exhibitionism. So uh, uh, and now maybe he was conflicted about this. Maybe he realized that he was playing both sides of the fence here. But th there is a two-sidedness to a lot of what he does. And this connects to the fallacy I mentioned before involved in John Cage's attempt to eliminate personality by choosing certain methods of composition. Every choice of method displays or exhibits or reflects a personality. Every title does so, for example. The title, Untitled, says a lot. So there's no way of escaping into, into uh, uh, eliminating your subjectivity if you are a, a concretely, historically situated human being uh, of a finite sort, and all the ones I know are. Uh, so there's no way of eliminating that. But you can, of course, work against it. You can sort of try to, as it were, push the boundaries of that as far as possible. But uh, I think the most, um, most honest artists are aware of the fact that, 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 that there, is, there is a limit there, and they're sort of pushing against something that can't be ultimately uh, uh, eliminated. All right, so the issue of whether Klein was after a certain kind of spirituality or contemplation, uh, or uh, at least uh, quasi-selflessness that could be induced by his paintings? I think yes. And the answer to why he doesn't, didn't go towards the language arts and simply write the word blue is that you need this kind of sensual aspect in order to have that sense of uh, kind of absorption and loss of self and immersion in the object. And um, his, his, his work, therefore, in the monochrome vein at least, is visual art, even if the objective is to go beyond the visual, as well, to give you an experience that isn't limited to simply appreciating visual form per se. Because that's clearly not what he was after. But visual form, or at least visual data, the, the, the impact of this amazing blue that he invented, uh, remains in a, an essential step in this, in this, the aesthetic experience or the, the uh, place that he wants you to end up. So it's, um, it's something that has to be gotten through, even though it isn't the end point or the raison d'etre of what, of what he's uh, after as an artist. It, it seems like it's the same situation that the church has, a relationship that the church has to artwork, uh -huh. which is that it's supposed to be representing something that you transcend. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe that's the, the thing he's after. It's, a, it's, it's his own 
church of sorts. Okay, I think you're right. There is an aspect to the art of someone like Klein, at least in, in this mode. Don't want to generalize too quickly whether it's true of everything he did, oh, okay. but the monochromes, there is this re religious aspect, this aspect of aiming at something transcendent via concrete physical visual symbols that are to be, as it were, gone past or gone beyond. If you're taken by the symbolism in, in Christianity and you just focus on, the, I guess, the taste of the wafer, you know, that's, that's not getting it. You have to see it in its transcendent or symbolic uh, uh, significance. But um, this is a good time, I guess, to mention that, that Klein's work in this transcendent, transcendence through or getting past the visual or the body vein, uh, connects him to uh, lots of other uh, movements in 20th century art that have this visionary, utopian, quasi-religious aspect to them. Uh, um, probably the best known are, are the early uh, abstract artists Kandinsky and Mondrian, who developed their work with these sorts of ideas in mind of, of somehow uh, the, uh, the manipulation and the exploration of form as itself a, a spiritual exercise. Uh, and, but also broader movements like the, the Bauhaus in Germany or the constructivists in Russia or the futurists in Italy, all of these movements had, weren't for, just formal movements. They were concerned with the idea that art could somehow open a window towards a better world or some sort of better future that people could aim at. Now, of course, these movements aren't all compatible. The world as the Bauhaus or the constructivist or the futurist would design it would be very different. So if you put them all into a... a uh, conference room and said, design the, the perfect world, you know, architecturally or visually, because they would start fighting with one another. But they had the same sort of objective. And Klein, is, his work is, I think, in that vein. And um, it's manifested in one of those last phases that I know very little about, where he tries to develop a kind of air architecture, a kind of abstract architecture using the least architectural or least solid sort of things, you know, air and wind and rain. What exactly this means is unclear, but its visionary aspect is pretty, is pretty, uh, pretty obvious. The nature of the blue, I read somewhere that it is somehow the most physiologically appealing color. Did you read the article? I think it might have been in the Post. There was something that said there's either a psychiatric or physiological response to blue that makes it the most appealing color to humans. Well, uh, that could be, but I, I don't think that was part of uh, I don't think that was part of Klein's rationale. I mean, I mentioned no, the things that. It's an interesting that, thing because mm -hmm. in taking this blue, which is tr transcendental mm -hmm. and representative of boundless sky and mm -hmm. seas, I mean that's and we're made up of water. You know, you can start sort of sometimes a little alcohol. You know, Um, well, the, the least, I guess, risky thing to say is that, of course, it's well known that the color is, broadly speaking, full into, you know, warm and, and cold, and, and there is something calming about blue as opposed to orange or red. So, insofar as he thought that the, the color, at least conceptually framed in a certain way, might lead to some kind of spiritual immersion or transcendence, then that it was a calming color rather than an exciting color was fits at least. What was his faith? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think he had a strict faith. He was raised in Catholicism, as most uh, French people are, but he was very interested in a movement called Rosicru Rosicru Rosicrucianism, 
um, who, who I can't remember too much more about it now, it's sort of more a mystical sort of sect. And then his, his ethnic background I thought was interesting when I learned about it. So on his mother's side, he was, uh, she was a Pro Provencal French woman. On his father's side, it was Dutch Indonesian. So he has some Asian. Which I, once I learned that, I could sort of see it in his, in his appearance a little bit. At least I thought I could. Uh, so he had, he's, a, he's a, a, you know, a citizen of the world, a mixed sort of religious ethnic background. Uh, how important all that is when he makes his mature work, I, I, I don't know, but it could be worth looking into. No, it's just something I saw there. It um, said all seas were like the Red Sea or the Dead Sea or things like this. Oh, yeah. So he, I think this was a protest also to say that the sea was blue. Well, he thought that it was odd that we name seas for other colors, the Yellow River, the Red Sea. Why don't we name any for blue? That seems a little silly to me, but because uh, after all, blue is like the norm or the default for the ocean, so that's why you don't name any old random sea the blue sea. But you know, this is part of his showman, I think, uh, showman uh, per side of his personality. Uh, anything he could use to, to get to make uh, the realm or what did he call it, the empire of blue uh, prominent and maybe long-lasting, a thousand-year blue life, maybe well, it was something he was happy to uh, happy to exploit. Uh, I, I know he's, he's really, I think you see, if you read about his life and his career, you see his oscillation between a kind of super seriousness and a, and a kind of sort of playful, uh, sati, dadistic like uh, provo provocateur uh, aspect. Uh, I didn't talk, we didn't talk really about the, the, the anthropometry and, and what all that all is about, but uh, that, that make interesting. Uh, subject in itself, but uh, that's sort of the opposite pole from these, at least ostensibly um, serene and, uh, and pure uh, objects. There he's doing something very bodily, and yet his body isn't involved, and he's using the most kind of voluptuous, sensuous material, you know, young women of a nice sort, and, um, but, but he's, he himself is not touching them or not touching the canvas. He's dressed in evening attire. Uh, while people play a, a very kind of ascetic music, a sort of um, a one note symphony that he composed uh, um, uh, early on. He was somewhat more interested in music than visual art, I think, at the beginning of his artistic exploration. Uh, showman. A showman, yeah. So um, uh, you, you have the, both things fused together. How many of you know about this incident about how he died? He died because of a film. Now, we've all seen pretty bad films, but usually they don't kill us. But this film sort of killed him. It was a film called Mondo Cane, which I remember seeing as a teenager, and it was like the most shocking, forbidden thing, uh, and it gave me kind of nightmares, probably. Uh, it's a film by an Italian sort of shock director, and it was supposed to show how there were so many outrageous and uh, uh, you know um, uncivilized and uh, and uh, um, uh, shocking practices around the world. But for some reason, the film towards the end ends up with um, a filming of, of the anthropometry, the, uh, the body painting using the nude models of, uh, of, of Klein. And, but apparently it was done in a sort of irreverent, not very uh, respectful way. And when he saw this film, he basically had a heart attack because of how he was being treated. And, and probably fairly that he had a, f a fair reaction of, of, uh, of, of resentment and disgust because even if he had two sides to his personality, there were two sides. So it seemed as if only the showman was being 
depicted and um, sort of pilloried in this film. And so he had a heart attack uh, shortly thereafter. And then he recovered, and then he had another heart attack about a month later and, and died at the age of 34, uh, which is very young to have produced all, all this, 34. So, okay, the film didn't, whether the, if the film was put on trial in the court, whether it would be convicted of murder is not clear, but I think you can see in a looser sense, this film killed him. And uh, it's, a, it's a pity since, um, obviously he was a very creative person and who knows what he would have, would have done if he had had another 35 years.